In over 63,000 total cases now. French President Emmanuel Macron's candidate for Paris mayor and a former government spokesman has withdrawn from the race following the release of private sexual images. Benjamin Griveaux denounced what he called the despicable attacks, as Jessica King reports from Paris. The candidate for Macron's party was, until now, one of the main competitors for the mayoral elections in France next month. However, on Friday, Benjamin Griveaux announced he was dropping out after the release of sexual images on social media. The now ex-candidate has not commented on the authenticity of the photos and videos, but Mr Griveaux said that for over a year, his family has been subjected to defamatory statements, lies, anonymous attacks, and the revelation of secret private conversations. With just 30 days before the election, it will be a blow to President Emmanuel Macron, who has been vocal in his support for Mr Griveaux, and will now have to scramble to find another candidate. Jessica King, Paris. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has told his reshuffled cabinet to make sure they deliver pre-election promises. The new cabinet's first meeting came after his finance minister, Sajid Javid, unexpectedly quit as chancellor on Thursday. Mr Javid refused to fire his political advisers to bring his team more under the control of Downing Street. It's now expected new Chancellor Rishi Sunak will oversee a period of high spending on infrastructure projects. Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick believes the merging of Downing Street and Treasury advisor teams is the correct call. I do think it was right that we bring together the economic function in government and ensure that there's a strong team at the heart of the government because what really matters to the public is getting things done. And if we can create the strongest team at the heart of government to do that, then that's exactly what we should be doing. The body of a British woman missing in New Zealand has been found by police. Stephanie Simpson, aged 32, from Essex near London, is thought to have died in an accident while on a hike last weekend on the country's South Island. Searchers made the discovery on Friday. Benji Hire sent this report. Stephanie Simpson was reported missing on Monday when a search began in Mount Aspiring National Park in New Zealand's Southern Alps mountain range. According to her Facebook account, she'd been living in the area since November and was working there as a landscaper. A thermal imaging drone, helicopters and search dogs initially failed to find any sign of her, with local police claiming the search was difficult due to the size and terrain of the region. There are not believed to be any suspicious circumstances surrounding Miss Simpson's death. Her family flew out from the UK to formally identify the body. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Welcome. Welcome to the program. If you are new to listening to Stacy on the Right, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you taking the time out to find our podcast and take a listen to it. And thank you so much for being here. I am actually super excited to say happy St. Valentine's Day to you. 
I hope you have some fantastic plans. Or um, if you're unattached, that you're going to do Galentine's Day. Oh, yeah. That's where you get together with your girlfriends. No pressure. You either meet up at someone's house or you meet out for dinner someplace and y'all just laugh and talk and enjoy each other. I actually did that this morning with some Bible study friends, and we had such a fantastic time. Um, if you're attached, if you are married, and you're looking forward to spending some time with your loved one, your husband or your wife this afternoon, um, awesome. I'm, I'm so excited for you, and I hope that goes just perfectly. I hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day celebrating each other and spending time together. Today on the show, uh, in addition to just celebrating the fact that it's Friday and we're going into the weekend, we have this story about Michael Bloomberg. And if you notice a trend, I'm going through some of these presidential candidates and I'm saying to you, um, this is the Democratic primary. So this is the information that we're going to share about the Democrats. There is not a lot of new information to share about President Trump, except that he's awesome and he's rocking it in a lot of categories. We are going to go over some of President Trump's amazing accomplishments in the areas of veterans. And I'm proud of this because I'm a veteran and because it takes a very special person to really look after the nation's veterans. And the reason I say that is because most of our presidents aren't veterans. They're, they've not served. And there's been a lot of hubbub made about President Trump not serving. For someone who's supposed to be so against the military because he didn't serve, he certainly has an amazing connection to veterans and the issues that are facing veterans. And he seems to have a real grasp of what needs to be done. So we're going to get into that. I have to get into that. That's, that's my thing, um, sharing news and information and also making sure that the truth gets out there. Now, if you found yourself uh, listening to the bonus content from last night, which was me on the Dave Glover think tank, and you enjoyed that, you know what is awesome? You are. I had a good time doing that. It sounded like a lot of work, and it was. Uh, the two gentlemen that I was speaking with, that we were kind of debating together over the issues, um, obviously they're Democrats. They were also veterans. And we, we didn't get to touch on that, which was kind of crazy. But the idea here is that these individuals are advocating for anybody but President Trump. But President Trump's the only one who's delivering things for the categories in which they fall. First of all, Americans. Second of all, black Americans. Third of all, veterans. Fourth of all, um, people who may or may not be at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum or individuals who are looking for a leg up and, and a way out of one income strata into the next. These are all people, individuals, people groups that have been helped by uh, President Trump's policies. So I found it interesting that they were so against him on personality type things because I honestly... Even if I'm working for you and your personality isn't the best, but I have a great position where I'm able to grow and I'm able to do a wonderful job. Yes, personality matters if you're working with someone on a day-to-day -day basis. But for the president, you don't really have to pay as much attention to personality as you do to the results, the policies, the things that he's willing to sign into law, the issues he's willing to take up and champion and try to get Congress to move on, the way that he's shaping the judiciary. Um these are things that should matter more than whether or not you like the tweets. Honestly, if you don't like the tweets, one of the best things to do is to unfollow people that you don't like their tweets. So I want y'all all to follow me at Stacy on the Right on Twitter, but I don't want people to follow me who don't enjoy my tweets. In fact, this just happened last week. A guy had come into my Twitterverse and he was 
um, commenting on my posts. I hope you'll be better than that. I hope you're going to learn from that. Yada, yada. I was like, I'm not. I'm I'm a fully formed individual and my thoughts have been uh, shaped by what I have researched. And so I was tweeting about something else and he came on. He's like, I'm unfollowing from here. And I said, please do. Please head off and follow someone that you feel will give you the information that suits your worldview. Since you disagree with me, I'm not changing. And he said, well, I, I hope as a parting shot, I hope you'll one day learn to be better. Yeah, I'm not. If better means agreeing with his worldview, I'm not going to do that. It's okay for us to have differing worldviews. So, and we're going to talk about that too. There was this amazing op-ed by this woman who was a lifelong Democrat. And now she is a, uh, you know, kind of, I won't say she's a Trump Republican. She's switched her voter affiliation to independent. And it's a really interesting piece that she wrote. And it all started with knitting. Maybe you saw this story out there, knitting. Um, And then just before we get into Bloomberg, because there's so much to get into, you guys. um, Let's also just talk a little bit about something that is really important, which is um, airplane seating. It happens that I'm six feet, two inches tall. So uh, it can be difficult for me when the person in front of me decides to let their seat back. Now, I prefer to sit in the exit row. Um, I like flying Southwest, so I don't really fly often on Delta or those other ones where they have classes of purchases, seats purchased. So you're in one row has like all the leg room and the other row you can't even bring a carry on bag on or that might be American uh, or United that does that. So I thought the story about the guy who was pushing, he was basically punching the lady's seat ahead of him because she let her seat back and he was in a seat in the final row that he could not recline and he looked pretty tall. Um, and so people were saying, well, why didn't he just ask her to do something about it? And I said, well, maybe he didn't ask because um, I know I've seen people ask on the plane. I've even asked someone not to let their seat back. And they'll say, my seat reclines, and I bought this seat, and it's my right to recline it. And I'm like, well, those are my knees that you're reclining into. I'm literally feeling like the seat is in my knees. And people don't always let their seat back up. Sometimes they'll say, well, that's too bad. They don't care. Um, this is America too. Like I, I hate to say it, but that is a part of America too. So the guy is punching her seat and she starts videoing him and then the, the post went viral and people are getting mad at him. Um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have punched her seat. I might've asked to move someplace else, but oftentimes with these overbooked flights, there is no place else to move. So for people who are reclining their seats cause they need to recline, um, it's no big deal if the person behind you is a kid, but if the person behind you is six feet, tall or taller they're literally no place for your seat to go and so sometimes I wish they wouldn't even have reclining seats on the plane as much as I I sometimes like to recline mine um but I've also noticed that I stopped doing that unless we're on a long flight I don't usually recline my seat even if I'm taking a nap because I just feel like I've just had the seats reclined into my knees so many times that it's almost like a an act of um like sacrifice. I don't recline my seat in the hope that in the future, no one will recline their seat into my knees. So anyway, um, yeah, that, that was that story. You can find the link to it. It's a video that you can see of the guy. He's just got his hand and he's just gently punching her seat. So she, her head's rocking back and forth because she reclined her seat and he can't recline because he's in the last row. And I, I saw some comments. They're like, well, he's the one who bought that seat. He might have bought that seat because it was the last seat available on the plane. If the plane's full and you buy your flight late, you end up with seats like that. 
Who knows why he bought that seat? Maybe that was all he could afford. But the idea that she had to recline her seat and she wasn't going to sleep at all, she had no reason to recline it other than she could. And when he said, hey, can you not recline? I just, can we just be nicer to each other? I guess that's the question. All right, so let's talk about Bloomberg now. This is a story that is really, it's not good for him because there are a couple of ways you can look at this. So I want to discuss two issues with Bloomberg. First of all, there's the redlining issue. And then I want to talk about the stop and frisk. So on the redlining issue, um, Bloomberg once blamed the end of redlining for the 2008 financial collapse in America. At the height of the 2008 economic collapse, then New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg actually blamed the end of discriminatory housing practices known as redlining as the reason why the meltdown was instigated. So it all started, and I'm going to read you his quote. Let's listen, listen to, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because in the chat room, Big Ron said, yeah, us people of height have it rough here. <laughs> exactly. I like to say permanently tanned Americans for black Americans and, uh, and people of height. That's what I'm going to start saying about being tall. I'm a person of height. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's not, it's, so the other thing is you just, what can you do? It's not like you were as a kid saying, I'm going to be extra tall so I can have the easiest life of all by being, you know, having people characterize you as being big, having people, you know, people are very insensitive about describing other people. Um, I'm probably guilty of it too. No, I'm not judging. And then also just to, uh, to see that most of the world is created for people who are about five, seven to five, 10 and everyone else is just <sighs> out of luck. Yeah. So, uh, here he is. Here's the quote from Bloomberg. It says, uh, he said, it all started back when there was a lot of pressure on banks to make loans to everyone. Redlining, if you remember, was the term where banks took whole neighborhoods and said, people in these neighborhoods are poor. They're not going to be able to pay off their mortgages. Tell your salesmen, don't go into those areas. He continued, and then Congress got involved. Local elected officials as well said, oh, that's not fair. These people should be able to get credit. And once you start pushing in that direction, banks started making more and more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as you would like. Now, let me put a pin in it right here. He's speaking at a forum hosted by Georgetown University in September of 2008. And the things that he's saying are not necessarily untrue. Here, here's, here's a part that's true. Banks started making more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as it would like, the bank would like. That's true. The issue that I have is that he advocated for redlining, which is a process by which banks say whole neighborhoods the people in those neighborhoods can't get loans and you can't get a loan to buy a house in those neighborhoods. So we need, okay, we need, we need a situation where you can get a loan and if your credit's not perfect, you can get a loan. You just have to pay a little more for it. We don't need a situation where you have a loan where you can pay 1% in the beginning and then 18% for the rest of the loan. So three years of good mortgage and then 18% for, you know, seven more years, and then the, the loan is up. Who pays for a whole house in seven years? Not many people. Um, then you have to refinance into another loan. Well, you know you couldn't make the payments on time if the interest is 18%, so it's setting you up to fail. So we don't want that. That's predatory lending. We also don't want whole neighborhoods cordoned off that you can't get a loan 
to purchase in that area and you can't get a loan if you live in that area because it creates food deserts and areas where people can't get it. You can't get a grocery store in there. Grocery stores won't put their uh, Walgreens won't put a store there. Even gas stations are loath to go into areas where it's been redlined. It's it's exactly what it sounds like. You're putting a line around an area and saying everyone within this area is verboten. We don't want that. But to swing the pendulum all the way in the other direction and say anyone can get a loan, no matter what their credit is, will just make the loan so hideous that only a fool would take it. And I'm not calling the people who got caught up in the subprime mortgage mess fools, but it's the, it's the attitude of the people who are creating these products. And that's what led to the mortgage mess, yes, lending to people who couldn't, couldn't get you know, they weren't prepared to handle a mortgage and especially not the mortgages that they were given. Instead of saying, look, the fact is you're only going to be able to buy a house that's like 85000 because your credit is marginal and so you have to get this kind of a loan. And then once you've gotten this kind of a loan at these interest rates in order to keep your payment in an area where you can actually afford it, this is the amount you can borrow. And then the person says, well, I'm, I'm not borrowing 85000 That doesn't get me anything in this neighborhood. I'm going to wait a little longer and rent until I can get my credit up. That's what should have happened, but that's not what happened. So there's a lot of blame to go around. But my problem with what Bloomberg said is that um, he's blaming it on the end of redlining. That's not the way this is supposed to work. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition. Wisdom would point to people saying, there has to be a way in which people can even get into some kind of a boot camp with their bank or with a mortgage lender where they come in and they say, you know what, you're not quite ready to get a loan right now. These are some things you need to do. And then maybe they check in in you know, 90 days or, or six months and they say, hey, here's, here's what I've got. Um, I've got, you know, my credit score is now here. And so the, in other words, instead of just slamming the door shut and saying, look, we can't loan anything to you, saying, actually... This is how far away from us lending to you we, we really are. Now, you might say, well, that sounds like some hand-holding and some babying. No. Yes and no. Yeah, it's a little bit more than banks might want to get involved in. But it, wouldn't it be better to get involved in that where you're not committing to anything. You're just saying you will be in a better position to get a loan if you do the X things. Then those people know what they have to do to get the loan. And then the bank is off the hook from saying they don't want to lend to these people. It's not that they don't want to lend. They just need the people to meet the criteria. And then the people know exactly what they have to do to meet the criteria. It's not a door slam shut in your face. It's a not right now. You are almost there. You can get there. Here you go. And then it's a much more equitable proposition. Now, why would I be advocating for that? Well, Christian worldview means we've read our Bible and we know that God wants good business transactions between all of us people. Even when we're dealing with non-Christians, we're supposed to be in good business practices. The kind of things that we've seen, redlining, um, predatory lending, those things go against God's will. They go against his plan for us. And when banks are participating in that, they're actually setting us up for the kind of financial meltdown that occurred. It was driven by the subprime mortgage industry. Not by the end of redlining, but the subprime mortgage industry. So you see what I have, the problem I have with Michael Bloomberg? He's blaming the end of a policy that hurt people, kept grocery stores out of their neighborhoods. They had to ride 45 minutes on a bus to go get groceries. He's not blaming the predatory lenders who said, you know what? 
the government wants us to make these loans to people. Let's make a buck off these people before their, their mortgages blow up and they get foreclosed. And then we can make money again when we resell their house. See how that worked out for them. When it imploded, it imploded to such a degree that there wasn't any profit center for the banks to pull from. They made a little money in the beginning, but by the time everything was on fire, it was not profitable. And banks went out of business, you see, which is the fruit of engaging in improper lending practices. It, it's going to come back on you. So Bloomberg, remember, he is a, um, a billionaire. He built his billions on a media and financial services empire. He is now uh, looking, you know, to become the president of the United States. And it's just sad to me that he's so far off and that he's actually a front runner because he's just dumping millions and millions and millions of dollars into advertising to get his name ID up. The reason his poll numbers are going up is because people are seeing his name a lot. They think he's a viable alternative. They know he's not a socialist. He's a capitalist. What they don't know about him is that he's into gun confiscation. He's just as radical as everybody else. He just likes making money, and he would never, ever sign on to a socialist bandwagon like Bernie Sanders would because Bernie Sanders made his money by writing a book and being in politics where Bloomberg has earned his through the creation of a media empire. So... He basically blames policies intended to bring equality to the housing market for the meltdown instead of blaming the predatory lenders. Now, there's the second thing that he's getting castigated for, which is the, um, the stop and frisk policies. So, you know, first of all, I, I read a piece by Ann Coulter, and she's saying people are going too far to the other side by saying stop and frisk was completely wrong. And I know for stop and frisk, there's uh, documentation out there. I read some pieces by people who are literally saying you can correlate the stop and frisk policy with people who would carry guns on their person. They didn't carry them anymore, which meant they didn't have the opportunity to shoot each other when they got into arguments and disagreements. And they're saying there are 20,000 young black men in America who are alive today because stop and frisk was implemented. So they're saying... Hey, lives saved. That being said, stop and frisk created an atmosphere in neighborhoods where people, black men, were, if you were out in public, the, no matter how you were dressed, no matter what you were engaged in, you, the police could just pull up, jump out, and say everybody on the wall, throw you up against the brick wall, and frisk you. It was dehumanizing. And, it, and then they'd say, don't let me see you here again. Now, not all of the encounters were like that, but there are enough reports that there were some like that for us to understand that it created an atmosphere of fear and trepidation in neighborhoods. People were deprived of due process because stop and frisk means the police officer suspects that you've got something on you that is not allowed, an unlawfully owned firearm, for instance. Or in New York, you're not really allowed to carry concealed anyway, so if you have a gun on you at all, you're breaking the law. But that suspect, like him suspecting you, doesn't have to be based on anything. He didn't need a warrant to search you. It's just an invasion of your person. So I think anything that saves 20,000 lives, you think to yourself, wow, that has to be great. Or it has to be good. Or it has to be worth some form of, you know, maybe a loss of your liberty in some way. 
But in other ways, I mean, I just got to ask you, do you really feel like that is what um, you, the way you want to live? Do you want to live in a neighborhood where if you look a certain way, you're black and you're a man um, and you're not elderly or you're not, you know, under the age of 10, that you can be thrown up against the wall and have your person searched, roughly searched. And then if they find nothing, they just don't let me see you again. Well, what do you mean? You live in the neighborhood. They're going to see you again. You, you can't help but be seen again. You are going to go home. And the next time you come outside, you could be seen by the same police officer. You guys know I'm a huge supporter of the police. I'm not against police officers, but I'm just saying there's two sides to this argument on stop and frisk. So on the stop and frisk issue, Bloomberg supported it. It did lower crime. It did lower the murder rate in New York City. It did appear to have a good impact. It also appears to have, at the same time it was doing good things, created an atmosphere of fear and persecution in neighborhoods and black people were deprived of their due process rights under this, this practice. So that's worth a conversation and it's worth um, delving in and looking at facts, not, not emotion-based information but, or emotion-based rhetoric, but looking at the facts surrounding what were the benefits and what were the negatives of stop and frisk, okay? On the redlining issue, he clearly... Um, he's out of touch with reality on the redlining. If he believed that in 2008, he said, you know, um, <laughs> it's interesting. He said, he's sorry about it now. Well, everybody's sorry about everything they've said prior to now. Amy Klobuchar was for the wall and for stricter immigration policies until she realized her party had left her in the dust. And now she's scrambling to keep up just like Joe Biden. He's moving to the left, not because he wants to, but because he's being drugged there by Bernie Sanders. I know you guys know, in my opinion, there's nobody on the on the left who's worthy of the vote in November. But I think it's just, it, to me, it's important for us to go over this information and to make the case. Um, not based on the fact that we don't like Michael Bloomberg. I could care less. I don't know if I like him or not. I don't care. What I'm interested in is what would he be like as president? And what can we do? We can look at what he said and what he's done previous to now to kind of figure out what he would be like as president. I don't think he has the judgment to be the president. I know he has a successful media operation. Irrelevant. I'm talking about him being the president of the United States. I don't think he would be, um, he would be right. So in the chat room, uh, Tracy said, I'm constitutionally against stop and frisk. I liken it to red flag laws. It's a good comparison. Um, and then Big Ron said, don't y'all love laws that violate rights to make a small percentage of people safer? Great point. Uh, I actually, no, I don't. I, I know there's a better way to get it done. There's a better way. And so that's not Paula, Pollyanna-ish, and that's not me saying, oh, you know, there's a magical. There's nothing magical at all. Um, so, you know, Lightning Man said, being of the permanent tan and thus always fitting the general description, I do hope my being permanently inconvenienced has made at least someone feel safer. <laughs> you know? There's nothing like looking at someone and realizing that they're assessing you for danger. And some of that comes, rightly so, if you're black, because blacks have the highest murder rate and the highest rate of violence of any ethnic group. That being said, it doesn't change the fact that if you are not violent and you're not planning on doing anything, if you're just shopping or walking or just living your life, 
when you see that look, you recognize it and it, it kind of, it takes you down a notch. It does. It takes you down and you think to yourself, I'm not doing anything. I don't, I hope they know I'm not doing anything. That's the first thing you think. You think to yourself, oh no, I'm not doing anything. You're not planning on doing anything. You're law abiding. And, and such is the world. People have, everyone has something they can complain about. White Americans also get looked at certain ways in certain environments. You know, if you're overweight, you, I mean, there's, there's some, some kind of side eye for every single category. So it's, it's not like black people are the only ones suffering from, you know, the, basically the stereotype of everyone being a certain way as opposed to, you know, we're talking about about 20% of people, even less than that in some areas, it's just 10% of the people who are criminals or violent do 100%, 80 to 100% of the crime. So you just say to yourself, well, why not get that 20% off the, off the streets? Well, that's what the Clinton crime, crime bill was about. It was about getting the people who were persistently criminal repeat offenders and violent offenders off the street for good and it did have a positive impact but now later of course we're saying you know over a million people were incarcerated most of them were black and that was a negative impact on the black community and now people have to be punished for that but remember who was asking for that clergy black black clergy wow friday can't talk black clergy and um black leadership and communities are the ones who requested that so, you know, hey, ho, there you go. I I got it here for you. Um, so now let's go over to this lady who said that she, just an amazing story. Um, the knitting site rivalry. So do you remember, and it's not rivalry, it's Ravelry. R-A-V-E-L-R-Y, Ravelry. It is a site for knitters. You can put your, uh, your, your patterns up there. You can do whatever you want. And you can sell your patterns. So what they did was, and this, you, you might remember me covering this story, June 23rd, some of the last shows I did over at the old place. Popular knitting platform Ravelry bans all Trump support, undeniably support for white supremacy. What they did was, if you, like, let's say, you had a uh, pattern on there for knit socks and it had the little Trump hair. You know, you've seen those socks. The hair is like the same hair that you use on those. Um, what's it called? Uh, the trolls. It's like troll hair, but it's it's yellow and it gets sewn onto the, the sock and the sock is knitted. And so these are patterns that they would sell. They would also sell the products because Ravelry is all about knitters because knitting is a huge thing in America right now. And if you're one of those people who you're not aware of this, don't feel bad. If you don't know someone who's a knitter, you might not be aware um, but there it's huge and it's not just like an old granny thing or a teenager thing it's all ages people say they find the act of knitting to be very relaxing and very much a way to unplug a great way to make something to be creative so um what happened was people would post their you know whatever designs for either trump or whatever and it wasn't like these were sites where it was just a pro-Trump Ravelry account. It was a whole bunch of different patterns for a whole bunch of different things. Baby hats, baby socks, little baby sweaters, you know, whatever. And then maybe one or two Trump items. And you could buy the pattern and then you download it and knit it, knit the pattern for yourself. Well, those were deplatformed. At one point, someone said um, that they were just deplatforming people for making comments. 
So social justice warriors took control of the site, and it was the go-to source on the internet for crafting, knitting, and crocheting patterns. And they made an announcement. They made it official. They said, we are banning support of Donald Trump and his administration on Ravelry. They were following in the footsteps of role-playing site RPG.net and SQL Lite, the world's largest database engine, after social justice warriors demanded a code of conduct. And so it basically said in the ban, quote, so you may not in support in the form of forum posts, projects, patterns, profiles, and all of their content, end quote, and that if you get booted from the site, for supporting Trump will make sure that you have access to your data. So it said, Ravelry said, they can't provide a space that is inclusive of all and also show support for open white supremacy. Support of the Trump administration is undeniably support for white supremacy. So Ravelry was fine with excluding at least half of the country, meaning that 44% of Americans, the ones who approve of President Trump, are all, every last one, white supremacists, okay? And they had a bunch of rules. I'm not even going to go into those because we did cover this, you know, way back when, s seven, eight months ago. Now, listen, here's the deal. You may be looking at this and saying, okay, um, wow, you know, who cares? It's just a knitting site. But this is a place where a lot of people were making some income, and they were also the camaraderie there. It, it was like the Facebook of knitting and crocheting, okay? So now here you have this woman and she is a lifelong Democrat. And she wrote this piece that is going viral. It has gone viral. And what she's talking about is that she attended a Trump rally. It's on uh, gen.medium.com. Her name is Carolyn Borishenko. Borisenko. I'm messing up her name. She's an organizational psychologist, mindfulness expert, author of Zen Your Work, principal of Zen Workplace, and chief science officer at Rallybrite. So that's quite a little um, thing that she's got going on there. So um, what she did was she attended a Trump rally, but it started off that she was going to this place, going, going to the Trump rally. It, it's not like she started there. What she did was she just started noticing after the Ravelry debacle how shrill and crazy people on her side of the aisle sounded. She actually was, you know, anti-Trump herself. So what she said was that she, she ended up, after being a Democrat for 20 years, realizing that her party was out of touch with the country at large. And I'm just going to read you a couple of snippets of this, and I'll have the link up at listen.stacyontheright.com. And I... I encourage you to read it. It is a 10-minute read, so it's a little lengthy, but the, the evolution or change process that she embarked on after the Ravelry debacle is one that is happening across the country. It feels like a little bit of a movement. It is like the walkaway movement, but this is a little different because she was aware of the walkaway movement, but she wasn't a part of it. This happened to her outside of the walkaway movement because it was a part of her life that she enjoyed Ravelry, she saw something disturbing happen, and then that forced her to reevaluate her beliefs about half the country who voted for President Trump. She says, I think those of us on the left need to make a take a long look in the mirror and have an honest conversation about what's going on. And she has a link there. 
if you had told me three years ago that I would ever attend a Donald Trump rally, I would have laughed and assured you that this was never going to happen. Heck, if you had told me I would do it three months ago, I probably would have done the same thing. So how did I find myself among 11,000 plus Trump supporters in Manchester, New Hampshire? Believe it or not, it all started with knitting. Uh, so she said, you might not think of the knitting world as a particularly political community, but you'd be wrong. Many knitters are active in social justice communities and love to discuss the revolutionary role knitters have played in our culture. I started noticing this about a year ago, particularly on Instagram. So she goes on. Uh, I knit as a way to relax and escape the drama of real life, not to further engage with it. But it was impossible to ignore after roving gangs of online social justice warriors started going after anyone in the knitting community who was not lockstep in their ideology. Knitting stars on Instagram were bullied and mobbed by hundreds of people for seemingly innocuous offenses. One man got mobbed so badly that he had a nervous breakdown and was admitted to the hospital on suicide watch. Many things were not right about the hatred. Witnessing the vitriol coming from those I aligned myself well with politically was a massive wake-up call. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to give you a couple of her quotes here. They have this one bolded. Democrats have a butt-kicking, to paraphrase, coming to them in November, and I think most of them will be utterly shocked when it happens. She said... The biggest question of all was this. Did I hate Trump so much that I wanted to see my country fail just to spite him and everyone who voted for him? She then goes on to describe how she made it to the New Hampshire primary after going to so many other places. She went to a ton of the other events for the Democrats, and she said it was all doom and gloom, malaise. We hate this racism, racism, racism. No policy positions, no excitement, nothing good about America. Here's another quote from her. It was so different than any other political event I had ever attended. She's talking about the New Hampshire Trump rally. She says, even the energy around Barack Obama in 2008 didn't feel like this. She says she was welcomed. She was treated kindly, with respect. People were nice to her. And when she told them she was a Democrat, they said, good for you. Thanks for coming. Now, I, I am partial to Trump folk and Tea Party folk. Y'all know that. I mean... Some of the nicest people you'll ever meet were back when the Tea Party days were in their heyday and everybody had their lawn chairs out and the little grandbabies were playing in the grass and there'd be American type, you know, Bruce Springsteen music playing and people were just waving flags and getting together to talk about smaller government. It was fun. And the Trump rallies are like those on steroids. They're like Tea Party rallies on steroids. And it's good. Um, so I'm, I'll put the link to this up. Um, and I just encourage you to read it. Um, I'm putting this into the computer right here, right now. Um, after attending a Trump rally, I realized Democrats, and then I'm going to make sure that I get this link into the show notes. Here it is, Jen Medium. I had it on my phone, y'all. But I think, um, you know, Big Ron is putting a great comment in the, in the, chat room wow it's almost as if trump supporters aren't all that evil who would have thunk it i feel like that and i also feel like in in the big scheme of things we are doing something amazing and that in spite of the hate and vitriol we are still carrying on you know it's not just about living your life and 
taking care of the people in your circle and, and you know, taking care of your family, et cetera, et cetera. That's important. But it's also nice. It's also, it's in, not just nice, it's imperative. It's, it's important for us to try to keep being kind to each other outside of that. And I am just as susceptible. Y'all, you know, you know how it is when you're just tired and you see somebody or you overhear them in line bashing Donald Trump and you just want to turn around and say, shut up. You don't know Donald Trump. But you can't turn around and tell people to shut up. So you stand there and you grit your teeth. And what we got to say to ourselves is we got to first say, Lord, please turn their hearts from darkness to light. Open their eyes so they can see the truth and receive it and that they can receive your son as Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, Um, or something like that. And then maybe just turn around and say, you know, not everybody who supports Trump is an evil person. You know, just just nicely. I, I don't know. Maybe you don't say anything. Maybe you keep the peace. But we're all Americans at the end. And President Trump is the president of the entire country, whether they love him or not. He's their president, too. And it's important for us to remember that and to keep the truth fires burning. So um, that will also be in the show notes. I encourage you to read it and share it. It's a really encouraging story. Um, really encouraging. I hope you guys will, will check it out. Now let's go over a little bit of this information. Veterans for Trump. Um, some of the things that the president has done to improve things for the lives of veterans. Uh, first off, he is wanting to actually improve veterans health care. And he's made a number of moves, including replacing the head of the VA, uh, with someone who was actually competent. And he secured $92 billion in funding for the department of veterans affairs, the most funding in the history of the VA. He signed the VA Mission Act, which revolutionizes the VA healthcare system by increasing choice and raising the standard of care for our veterans and expanded access to walk-in community clinics that offer immediate local care. And that is so important for veterans. Um, he expanded access to telehealth services for veterans, including through the VA's Anywhere to Anywhere program. And the Trump administration created the White House VA hotline where it's primary staffed by veterans and direct family members of veterans. And that hotline since its inception has answered more than 250,000 calls and 94% of cases from these calls have been resolved. So this list that I have is pages and pages and pages. And I am really, really excited about the information that's here, but I want to point you to Stacy on the right.com where I will have this information and, uh, up there where you can share it in a blog post Um, and I want you to be able to share that with people who are saying well I'm a veteran what is he doing for me and I'm going to continue to post things like that as I get them I'm going to put this information up at Stacy on the right so you can have it to share in your networks you can print it out and just hand it to a person and say you you asked me what the president has done here's a list or you can text them or email them and say here's here's top top 10 things if you read through this and you say you know what this is too many items he's 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 too much winning too much winning for me you can go through here and find the top 10 things you think are important and share those how about that (laughs) i love it when a plan comes together so that's the show for today you know what guys thank you for being here um robin tracy big ron uh chi Thank you all for being in the chat room today. And, oh, before I go too far out.
Lori and Triple Z over at the YouTube page. Everybody, happy Valentine's Day. God bless you. Be back with you next week. Get in the queue this weekend.